Well, this is an incredible moment for me. Some of you may not know me. I'm Barry Smith. I was the pastor at Impact Community Church, and I get to speak here every so often. But this is a special moment for me because this is likely um, my last message in California, at least for quite some time. My family and I on Wednesday are headed out to Indiana. If you follow us on Facebook, you know that my wife posts everything all the time about everything we do. Uh, but we're headed back to Indiana, where we came from 18 years ago when we, when we planted Impact. And um, I'm privileged to be a very small part of this church launching uh, about 15 years ago, give or take. And it's been really great to do that. And I, I love your pastor so much. He is, a, he is a great friend, and he is a great pastor, and he's a great leader, and he really loves you guys. And, and I, I, know, I get, we see pastors talk behind the scenes, and sometimes our, our congregations aren't too lovable. He, he loves you guys all the time. <coughs> Don't tell the impact I said that. Um, he, he's just, he's a legit dude. And, and I've been honored to watch this church grow and to see the lives that have changed. And, and it is uh, humbling and exciting for me that if this is my last message in California, that it would be with you all. So for me, this is really special. For you, you might be a ho-hum and it's just another, you know, guest speaker. But I, I don't consider myself a guest here. I thank you. And I really mean that I love, I love you. I mean that. I, you're, you're a part of my spiritual family, and spiritual families are really important. And I love my own family, especially my immediate family that's here, and I've got a senior that's, uh, a son that's a senior going into his last year, and all he's known is Elk Grove. And my daughter will be a sophomore, and so I really love them, and as we make this trek across the country, uh, back home to Indiana that they don't know anything about. And uh, other than they visited there, so they're they're excited, believe it or not, um, as excited as you can be leaving your your school friends and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and I'm excited about my family that I get to reunite with there. And I love my in-laws. I got great in-laws. And I'm I'm not just saying that. And they're not even here. I don't even know if my wife's here. I think she's coming to the next service. I really really have great in-laws. Not everybody can say that. Uh, but it was back when we first got married that my father-in-law. Uh, did some, some thing, uh, one particular thing that drove me nuts. And he would consistently complain about how much we didn't visit. I think they were in Kansas City, and I don't remember where we are. We were probably in Indiana in our first ministry, or Missouri, and we didn't visit enough. And then when we were on the phone talking, he would say how much we don't call and how we don't talk long enough on the phone. Now, I realize, I realize that's his way of showing that he loves us and he wants to hang out with us, and I appreciate that. But for the sake of the relationship, I had to confront him on this because I found myself not even wanting to talk to him sometimes on the phone. Now, I'm not throwing my in-laws under the bus. I'm just saying we had to have that conversation. It was the, the one thing that really bugged me when we first got married. And uh, so it was difficult, but we had the conversation. I remember it was in a in another state, and he was taking him to the airport, and I was just praying, my heart was pounding, and, and I said, you know, this really isn't helpful, and, and it was great, he was gracious with me, he's a big dude, too, and kind of intimidating, uh, but, I, but I shared it with him, and it has been tremendous ever since then, he understood my parents were aging, and I wanted to visit, he got it, and we've been good ever since, at least with that area, we won't talk about anything else, but that was, that was really great. One of us, one thing that I think we all have in common is an estranged family member. Not a strange family member, but you might have that too, but an estranged. There's a difficult relationship or a really close friend where we've had trials, we've had something happen. Maybe a sibling, a parent, an aunt or an uncle, an ex-spouse, 
uh, a child, whatever it is. And the closer you were to that person and then you get tension in the relationship, the harder it is because of that, that, that brokenness between you. And you've got the desire to go back to the way things used to be, before that thing they did, before that thing that you did, before the betrayal that, that led to the damage. And every once in a while, maybe it's at holidays, maybe it's a song you hear on the radio, maybe it's a birthday or some special time or when you put your head on your pillow at night and you've been contemplating stuff, deep down inside, we wish we could go back the way it used to be or the way that it should be. There's people in our life that are like that. Maybe you were the one who was injured or you were abused or you were abandoned or somebody hurt your reputation and it was unjustified, it wasn't right, or maybe it was an ex-spouse and we just want to make things civil, right? We, we don't even have to really get along. Let's just be civil, but they don't want to, so you don't. Maybe it's a prodigal child, and as a parent, you realize that part of the reason that they're a prodigal is because you, you caused the problem, or certainly a part of it. And you want to reconcile, and you've tried to reconcile, and you've reached out, but they wanted no part of it. They weren't interested, so you've given up. You'd argue... It just won't do any good. Still, sometimes, deep down inside, you wish that you could push past the pain, push past, past the betrayal, the harm, the rejection, and crash through to the other side and reconnect. What do we do with those feelings? What do we do with those relationships when, when the other person just doesn't seem to care. This is so important, folks, because it's those past relationships that got weird, they don't really stay in the past like we want them to. They, the, the unresolved tension, the unresolved frustration, the anxiety keeps spilling over into our current relationships, don't they? If we think about it. We can look back at some of the stuff that we've had, some of that junk, and it's spilling over into current relationships, maybe even your own spouse. And sometimes God puts us in the process of reconciliation. Listen, he puts us in the process of reconciliation, but his goal goes far beyond the reconciliation itself. That's God. He just does things differently. God wants us, I believe, to pick up the phone, to write the email, write the note, get in the car, go over and do the visit, and reconcile with family and close friends that we've had where the door seems to have been slammed. We're going to look in our, in our Bibles uh, at two brothers that were, at best, their relationship dysfunctional. At best. In fact, one of them tried to kill the other one. It's in Genesis 32. If you have your Bibles or on your phones, uh, turn to Genesis 32. We're going to spend a lot of time there and, and into Genesis 33. Here's the gist of this 20-year story. God calls Abraham, says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son, two sons, named Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest, and he was what we would call, and I know this isn't uh, politically correct, but he was a man's man, right? He was a hairy-armed hunter. Uh, he was just kind of, oh, you know, that, that sort of a guy. And Jacob was the younger brother, and he was not the stereotypical man's man. He would hang around the house with his mom, and he was a cook. He was a great cook, and, and I've met some cooks that I would not want to meet in a dark alley, or a lighted alley for that matter, because they're big burly men too. So let's just don't go too far with that, all right? I know I'm still in California. You can preach this message in Indiana, no problem. Here I know I'm, I'm dancing on the edge. Just understand, Jacob liked the indoors, okay? And so mama, mama was named Rebecca. And, and Rebecca loved Jacob best. And Isaac was daddy, and daddy loved Esau best. And that's a recipe for dysfunction 
at, a, at its best. I love the Bible. I love its honesty that it would share this sort of stuff. It's primed for dysfunction. And one day Esau comes home from hunting and he is literally starving. He's about to pass out. And Jacob is in the food, doing, or in the kitchen doing what he does best. He's making food. And Esau says, I need food. I need it now. I'm, I'm literally, I need it. Jacob says, okay, give me your birthright. The birthright was the right of the oldest son to receive a double inheritance, which was really important. I mean, you think about it. If, if today there was an inheritance of $400,000 and there were three brothers that were going to inherit it, the youngest brother would get $100,000, the middle brother would get $100,000, and the oldest brother would get $200,000. That's the, 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 the inheritance that he would get. That's the birthright. So it's kind of a big deal. But Esau is sitting there about ready to die, and he's thinking, if I die anyway, you're going to get it all. So it doesn't matter. So he made the trade, and he ate the meal. And he regretted it terribly. And time goes on. And before daddy, before Isaac dies, he's blind, essentially blind. He called his oldest son. He wants to lay hands on him. He says, listen, I want to give you the family blessing. It's a big deal. And he's going to prophesy over his oldest son. And he says, I want you to, Esau, I want you to go out and go hunting, get some big game, bring it back. We're going to share a great meal. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give you the blessing. Rebecca, mama, she overhears this. And she's going, Jacob. You can have the birthright and the blessing. All you've got to do is pretend to be your brother while he's gone. <laughs> you read the Bible, and these are the people God used, right? This is the lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, these are the people that God's going, yeah, he's, these, are the, these are your forefathers. Here are your examples. You know what that tells me? There's hope for my family, kids. We're okay. You look at the trickery and the deceit, there's hope for your family, there's hope for my family. I love that the Bible's all jacked up. It's great. <laughs> Rebecca said, we'll put skins on your arm, animal skins on your arm, so, so you'll feel like your, your brother Esau, and then you can wear his old clothes like you, you can smell like him, which tells me Esau smelled. I'm just saying, he, he may have been a man's man, but he, he might have really been a man's man in a, in a lot of ways. And he said, Isaac's blind anyway, Rebecca says, so You'll feel like his hairy arms, and you'll smell like him. It'll be great. So they have a meal. Isaac's a little suspicious. He, he's like, I'm not sure, but then he gives him the blessing, and he says to Jacob, thinking it's Esau, the oldest one, he says to Jacob, you're going to rule and reign over your younger brother. Meanwhile, Esau does everything that daddy asked him to do. He goes out and gets the big game. He brings it back. He says, okay, dad, lay it on me. Dad says, what are you talking about? I've already given you the blessing. We've already had the meal. And Esau says, with who? And Esau realizes in that moment that Jacob tricked him again. He swindled him out of his birthright, and now the blessing too. And Esau cries out to Daddy, Daddy, no, please, you've got to bless me, please, come on. And Isaac's going, dude, I don't have a blessing to give you. Your younger brother is going to rule over you. And it's in that moment that Esau stops and goes, oh, snap, game on. And he stops crying. And he makes an oath, when my father dies and the time of mourning is over, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. Rebecca hears this and says, Jacob, the jig is up. we got to get you out of here. Get it, I dodge quick. And so he, she sends him over to uh, a brother out of, out of the country, and, and um, Esau then waits patiently for Isaac to die, for daddy to die. Twenty years goes by, Jacob and Esau are still separated. They've not reconnected. 20 years, and one day out of nowhere, God says, Jacob, I want you to go back, go back home and, and talk to your brother. And Jacob's thinking it's not going to work. 
that's, that's not a good idea. Why would I go see my murderous brother? It won't do any good. Sound familiar? If you're a new Christian, this is going to happen to you. Who knows how many years from now, but God will just slap you upside the head one day. Years from now, and say it's time to go home and get things right. He'll ask you to pick up the phone. He'll ask you to send the email. He'll ask you to write the letter. He'll ask you to get in the car and go back home and face the relationship with your mom, with your ex-spouse, with whoever it is, to go back and get things right. At that point, you're going to say, it won't work. They won't listen. There's no point. They won't talk to me. They're happy without me. They don't miss me. It won't do any good. God will say, I have a different definition of good than you do. And that's when you'll go, oh stink it might not do any good the way you say it god says but i've got a plan god says to jacob you need to go home and see your brother who promised to kill you and that's where we pick up the story in genesis 32 beginning with verse 3 jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother esau in the land of seir the country of edom he instructed them this is what you are to say to my lord esau your servant jacob says i have been staying with laban have remained Uh, There till now, I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. So Jacob sends out some scouts ahead of him to find out what's up. And the scouts come back with some good news and some bad news. In verse 6, it says this, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. Here's the good news. And now he's coming to meet you. But here's the bad news. And 400 men are with him. And Jacob thinks probably what we think. There's no point in doing this. It's not going to work. He's not going to reciprocate. He is not going to understand. This is not going to end well. This is not going to do any good. Verse 7. In great fear and distress. Listen. In great fear and distress, Jacob went ahead and did it. He divided the people who were with him into two groups. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group... The group that is left can escape. In other words, he says, this is going to be ugly. (laughs) This is not going to end well. The best I can do is cut my losses and divide everything up. And maybe when he kills the first group, the second group can get away. Verse 9. Then Jacob prayed. So now now Jacob made a plan, and now he's going to God. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, who you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. In other words, he says, God, God, I'm an important part of a line here, an important line of people. So please pay attention. This is a big deal. You promised to make a great nation out of us. And by the way, God, this was your idea. And some of you may be thinking right now, right now is someone that you need to reconcile with. And the idea of reaching out to them makes you queasy. Maybe sick, maybe angry, sick to your stomach. To be hung up on again. You don't want a part of that. To have a heartfelt letter not return. To write a five-page email just sharing your, your, your concerns and your, 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 your asking for forgiveness and you're forgiving them and then they give you a forget-you response. To have that person that you trusted, but they betrayed you. To have yet another opportunity and a chance to crush your spirit. You, want, you really don't want to do that. Everything in you says, no way. Nothing good is going to come from that. It won't do any good. But my prayer is that you will see that all of that is God's idea. 
and it is God's calling, and that you will go ahead and do it anyway, just like Jacob did. Look at verse 10. He continues the prayer. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant, speaking of himself. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, like he's putting God's words back in, you have said I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. God, you say you love me, but you are sending me into a massacre. This is disaster waiting to happen. But I'm going to go ahead and do what you've asked me to do, and the results are totally up to you. I'm going to do everything I can, but ultimately it's got to be you. And if we can get there, folks, if we can get to that point in our obedience to God, that we would go back to, in a situation like this and just obey. I mean, we'll put some plans around it, but the ultimate thing is I will go. I'm going to try to protect myself, but God, the results are in your hands. When we get in that position, God can do amazing things in us and through us and around us. But sometimes, sometimes it's just the process that's so important. And with God, it's so much bigger and deeper than everyone just being happy and everything ending up okay. Look at verse 13 of 32. He spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. It was like a zoo. I mean, this doesn't mean a lot to us, but it's a whole lot of value. This was really important, verse 16. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. And he said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. That's important. Verse 17, he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. It was really the opposite. Jacob was the Lord and overseeing and Esau was the servant. And he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. Jacob's scared to death. Why? Because he's thinking the same thing that you and I think. It's this is not going to do any good. It's not going to end well. This is a mass suicide. And then in Genesis 33, we'll jump to there, beginning with verse 1, he comes up with yet another plan. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau from a, from a long distance coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So Jacob is thinking, listen, I'm going to get in the front. I'm going to divide up my family into three groups, and if he kills me, then maybe my family family can scatter. And if he does catch up to some of my family, he's going to catch the ones I love the least first and my favorites last. The Bible's awesome. Dude, you just got to read it. I really recommend you read it. 
Jacob's expecting the worst. He bows down seven times, which was the most humility that he could show. And Jacob finally gets up, and the story goes on, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant, meaning himself. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. They were the second favorite. And then, last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And Esau asked, what's the meaning of all the flocks and herds I met? And, 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 I met? and in a sheepish voice, Jacob says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. And what we find are two incredibly important principles in, in reconciling difficult relationships. These are really important. Number one, we are to pursue reconciliation in spite of our expectations. We are to pursue reconciliation in spite of our expectations. Maybe we tried in the past and it hasn't done any good. And since we didn't get the response that we wanted, we just shut down. But God's trying to tell you, you your goal, your goal is to stay in pursuit and the process of reconciling. But God defines success in reconciliation differently than we do. It's in the process that God goes beyond the reconciliation itself and what we expect in the actual relationship. You'll see what I mean here at the end. Jacob, Jacob actually met God on the way to reconcile with Esau. Do you remember that and the ladder and all that stuff? We skipped over that. But God says, now your name's going to be Israel. You're going to be the father of the nation. And it all happened in the process of reconciling. That's the Jacob ladders thing and the socket and the wrestling with God, that whole thing. God has spiritual benefits for those who obey, who, who, who commit to go through the process. Even though some of you have given up on God, listen, even though some of you have given up on God and you've slammed the door in a potential relationship with him, God's side of the door is always wide open. Some of you, you, you haven't given your lives to Christ yet. You've, just, you've, you've shut him out for whatever reasons. Maybe you feel they're justified. I promise you God's door is still wide open to you. For us, we've got to be in the pursuit and process of reconciliation, especially with family. It's the healthiest thing that you could do emotionally. Even when you think there's no way. Why? Put this up on the screen. It allows you, listen, this is really important. I'm not a psychologist, but this is, I think, really profound. It allows you to channel and focus all that frustration, anger, disappointment, rejection, etc. on that specific person. Because the moment that you just say, forget it, I give up, I'm done, you have a boatload of anger, a boatload of unresolved situations, frustrations, and issues that you're going to dump on every close relationship that you have in the future. If you don't have the anger, frustration, and all that junk resolved, it stays with you. It's the most unhealthy thing you could do to just give up. So at least if you continue that pursuit and process, are you feeling me? You following this? At least if you continue the pursuit and process and the open door to the person that you have an estranged relationship with, you're projecting all of that yuck and the unresolved stuff on that person, and you can try your best to go on with some healthy relationships beyond there because at least you've done your part. You are in pursuit and process of reconciliation. That's what's important, not that it's all reconciled and everybody's happy. As far as it depends on you, you're open and pursuing and want reconciliation. 
smartest and healthiest thing you can do is continue that process. If you're, if you're an angry or negative person, it's probably not the people in your life right now that are causing that. You're still carrying around the shrapnel of all that junk and explosions of unresolved relationships that you've closed the door on. The best thing you can do is keep your side of the door open and keep it open and pursue reconciliation in spite of your expectations. That's number one, first principle. Second principle is especially for parents. We are to pursue reconciliation for the sake of our next generation. Not just for me and my conflict, but for the next generation. And this is where I hope it comes together for you. When Jacob and Esau reconciled that day, picture it. They reconciled that day out in the desert or wherever they were. Something happened that no one was aware of. Someone was watching. The whole thing happened as a bystander. Go back again to Genesis 33, verse 1. We're going to read it again. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children, no names there, among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. Get this. He put the female servants and their children, no names in front. Leah and her children, no names next. And Rachel and who? Joseph in the rear. Little Joseph, in just a few years, was going to be betrayed by his own brothers, thrown in a cistern, and left for dead. Remember that? And the brothers would tell Jacob, the dad, your favorite son from your favorite wife is dead. And Joseph then gets sold as a slave, but through the providence of God, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, and one day his brothers will come wanting food, and they will all bow down to him, just like it was all said. And Joseph, in that moment, will have the opportunity to decide whether they live or die, just like Esau and Jacob. That little boy sat on the back of that camel, and he watched his uncle Esau extend forgiveness to his daddy. And you know growing up, Joseph heard the stories of daddy telling how he did his uncle dirty. Stole his birthright, stole his blessing. You know those stories had to be told. What else they got to do but sit out, you know, in front of a fire? They didn't have Nintendo and anything else. Joseph grew up with those stories. And Joseph saw the family restored right there when Esau embraced Jacob. That great mercy and kindness acted out that grace. Had Joseph saw Uncle Esau extend vengeance and get back to on his daddy, justified as it was, Joseph would have been a victim of rage and anger. And some 35 years later, Joseph's in that same position with, that his Uncle Esau was in. Do I kill him or do I extend forgiveness? And Joseph says to his brothers as they all bowed down to him, you don't need to fear. I'm your brother. I'm not going to kill you. And he ends up just blessing them. And the family was restored again. Here's the deal. Where will our children learn and see the message of reconciliation? How, how, do, you, how do you want your children to treat each other when they're adults? How do you want your children to treat you when they're an adult? The process that they see in you, the things that you're doing, particularly when it comes to pursuing reconciliation, may have everything to do with how our next generation handles difficult relationships. We don't know what hangs in the balance of, in the process of, of, of pursuing reconciliation, but what we do know is that God didn't give up on us and we're not to give up on other people. 
God's already paid for all the sins that you've ever created or will create. Whatever you've done, it's forgiven, including, including the sins of the person that you haven't been able to forgive. God's forgiven those through Jesus and his blood. You go, you don't understand how heinous a sin that they've done against me. No, I don't. But I'm sure you've done the same thing to somebody else. I know the stuff I've done. I have no business standing here in front of you, let alone being forgiven and restored and then called. It's crazy. It's crazy how lavish and unreasonable God's mercy and grace is. I'm exhibit one. And that person that's done you dirty, God wants to do that same thing to them. Here's the challenge. Who came to mind while, we, while I've been talking? Who came to mind? And you're probably feeling it won't do any good. You don't know me. You don't know my situation. But here's what I do know. You don't know what good is. God's got a different definition. It won't work. You don't know what God's work is. You're just to stay in the pursuit, no matter your expectation. The challenge is this, will you reconcile, in spite of your expectations, and, and for the sake of the next generation, because you don't know who's watching. Our Father in Heaven gave up everything that was precious to Him, His Son, Jesus Christ, to pursue a relationship with us when there was no guarantee that everything would be okay. And God says, listen, I just want you to keep the door open for others just like I kept the door open for you. That's all I want you to do. Let me take care of the results. You pursue it. And that's all I want. You keep the door open. Because God says, listen, I was relentless in my pursuit of you. That's the new standard. That's the expectation. Do you have a fractured relationship in your family? Do you have a fractured relationship with someone, a close friend? An ex-spouse? Who comes to mind? Will you rely on God to start the process in spite of your expectations and for the sake of the next generation? Let's pray. God, I'm sure there's some folks in this room or listening that uh, aren't particularly fond of this message right now and this scripture. I pray, God, that you would give them and all of us and myself the courage to take the next step, to keep the doors wide open in spite of the pain, in spite of the rejection. Give us the grace to be for our family members, what you've been for us, you set the example, you set the standard, and now we'll do everything we can to try to stay in pursuit of reconciliation. God, I pray that you would surprise people here, just as you surprised Jacob with what you did in Esau and in his heart on the other side of that door. God, right now, I pray that we would, these folks right now in this room and listening, would they would take a moment to give you an opportunity to just minister to them, to love on them, to encourage them, to challenge them, to help them see it's not about their expectations. The outcome 
I don't want to say is irrelevant because it's not, but the outcome isn't the most important thing. You, God, may have a much grander plan in the middle of all this, even if it's just dealing with our own hearts and helping us to be more like Christ. In these moments, God, right now, just touch and challenge and encourage and inspire everyone's hearts to be obedient to anything that you might ask them to do because we've been here this morning. And may they be open and respond with a resounding, yes, I will do it. It won't do any good. I think it's a bad idea. It's like a mass massacre that I'm running into. I'm just going to get abused and all of this, but God, for your sake, I will do it. And I think that's what God wants from us. And if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, man, today, let it be a day that you finally say yes. Because that door is always open from God. In Jesus' name, amen.